Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. For months now, Democratic lawmakers have been debating whether to launch impeachment proceedings against U.S. President Donald Trump. But as many have noted, impeachment isn't the only way to remove a president in between elections. Another method is through the provisions contained in Section 4 of the 25th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which provides, in part, that the vice president and a majority of the cabinet may declare a finding that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office because of sickness or disability. As noted by Michigan State University law professor Brian Kalt, however, there are many misconceptions about how the 25th Amendment works. And declaring a president unfit to govern is not nearly as simple as it sometimes is made to appear in movies or TV shows. In a new Oxford University Press book entitled Unable, The Law, Politics, and Limits of Section 4 of the 25th Amendment, Professor Colt clears up some of these misconceptions and provides hypothetical scenarios that demonstrate how the amendment's provisions could operate in a real crisis. I first met Brian in 1994 when, even as a first-year law student, he was able to provide me with a detailed dissertation on 19th-century presidential politics, and this was even before I'd learned his last name. This week, Brian Colt spoke to me from East Lansing, Michigan. What follows are excerpts from our conversation. So how did the 25th Amendment come into being? Was there some president who was acting weird and they just said, we need something to deal with this? It was a problem that they'd been worrying about uh, almost from the get-go, but no one had really done anything about it. The original Constitution doesn't really handle the situation of a disabled, incapacitated president very well. Uh, we had President Garfield. He was shot, but he lingered for months before he died, and so we effectively had no president. Woodrow Wilson had a stroke, was incapacitated for, again, for months. Uh, effectively, we didn't have a president, or his, his wife was, was basically running things. So people were aware of that. The problem is it was really hard to fix. When President Kennedy was killed in 1963, there was a renewed drive to fix it at that point. And most immediately, right before that, President Eisenhower had had some health problems. And as a military guy, and, and with the nuclear age beginning then, it, it was really important to Eisenhower that there always be a steady hand at the helm. So he really jump-started the process. And then when Kennedy was shot, that's when Congress really picked up the ball and ran with it. Were there controversies around the drafting of the 25th Amendment in the sense that people were wary that if we make the language too broad, it can be used in a frivolous or vexatious way to just get rid of somebody who's not popular? Well, I think everyone agreed that they needed to look out for that. The, the big controversies were just what are the best ways to do it? Who should the decision makers be? Should we specify a process in the amendment and make a really clunky provision? Or should we just say Congress can decide? Those those were the big fights. Once they decided to use the cabinet as the decision-making body, it, it was pretty uncontroversial. It, it went through pretty easily as these things go. 
the, the structure of the 25th Amendment is really set up to do two separate things. The first is, if the president is incapacitated, then we want a swift, certain way of transferring power so that there's always that steady hand at the helm. And the cabinet was seen as a responsible and legitimate body to do that. If the president's in a coma, there's really no controversy there. So those are the easy cases. Then the tough cases, it's really set up to be hard. It's supposed to be, in all but the most extreme cases, difficult to displace the president, to remove him from power. So what they did was they they picked the vice president and the cabinet who they presumed would be loyal to the president, would be unwilling to do this lightly. So a lot of people say, oh, well, they're beholden to him. Well, that's that's a feature, not not a bug. And And then they stack the deck in the president's favor by saying, if he contests the action, then you need two-thirds in the House, two-thirds in the Senate. That's not going to happen very easily. So, again, in those tough cases, it's set up to protect the president more than it is to provide a mechanism to remove him. Do you think the drafters of this amendment would look at the politics of today and say, yeah, that's exactly how we would have drafted the amendment, even if we knew about the more party-line loyalty that exists in the 21st century? I think that they were conscious of partisan politics, and I, I think that they probably weren't aware of how polarized it would be. So partisan and, and polarized are, are two different issues. Uh, again, if it's a situation where the president is in a coma, it, it shouldn't matter. He's not going to contest it. There won't be any politics at all. But the, the idea of, uh, similar to impeachment, the idea of requiring two-thirds in the House, two-thirds in the Senate, is this isn't going to happen unless the president's own people agree that it should happen. And because the president's own people and the cabinet would have to believe that first, it's it's really not adding that much to say that the president's own people, his own supporters in a polarized Congress have to support it too. I find it hard to imagine a situation where the president's own cabinet and the vice president would say he's got to go, but members of the the Senate in uh, or, or the House that are in the president's party would say, well, that's not good enough for us. We need to we need to help them out. It's really it's really going to require an alignment of all all of those people in a way that in a way that other things don't. A- anything else political that happens, if if you have the numbers on your side, you'll win. We never in, in the U.S. have a situation where you've got two-thirds majorities against the president in Congress, unless something weird happens, like um, when Andrew Johnson was president. It's the only time the president has had two-thirds opposition in the Senate, and of course, they impeached him. Do the states have analogous mechanisms for getting rid of governors uh, who are impaired? They do. I'll confess, I don't have a working knowledge of all 50 governors' protections and processes for when they're impaired, but they all have a way for the lieutenant governor, if if that's who's second in line, to step in. Just as Section 4 of the 25th Amendment has never been used against any president because it would be quite a, quite a step, there's really not a, a record of state governors being thrown out over their own objections because of impairment like that. Generally speaking, what happens is that they're prevailed upon to resign. And it's different with governors than with presidents because you don't have the same sense of urgency. With the president, you need someone in control of the military 
if word gets out that there's no one controlling the nuclear codes at the moment, then that could be problematic. At the state level, there are no nuclear codes, and pretty much anything can wait. In another era, when a president, or in fact, when any public figure had impairment, uh, often it was covered up because the the way society was organized, uh, you didn't have the same level of media intrusiveness. You could have public figures who would simply just go out of sight for weeks or even months. Do you suspect that there were presidents in the past who were impaired or disabled for, for periods, but their intimates or their political allies basically covered up for them in a way that just we'll never know, it'll never be in the history books? Well, the thing that's surprising to me is how much we do know that they were impaired, sometimes even at the time. Uh, and certainly there are there are interesting stories of things being covered up. Grover Cleveland uh, had a, a tumor in his jaw that needed to be removed. And so they made up this cover story that he was on a vacation on a on a boat and they did the operation on the boat and then they had to do a second operation and they, they didn't want the the stock market to panic. Things were kind of tenuous there and the story only came out decades later, long after he had died when, when one of the doctors spilled the beans about that. But there were other situations. President Madison during the war of eighteen twelve had what they refer to as a bilious fever and he was he was incapacitated. He, they, they weren't sure he was going to live, but he certainly couldn't do his job. Uh, it was in the middle of a war, and everyone knew about it. The problem was that the Constitution didn't really allow any effective way of dealing with it. They said the, the vice president takes over in that situation, but they didn't provide a process. They didn't say who the decision maker would be. They didn't make it clear that the president could take power back if he recovered. So that just went on, and he got better, and it was okay. But, yeah, there are cover-ups. There were cover-ups with President Wilson. But even even there, Wilson's doctor came out and said to the press, it was reported in the paper, that he was unable to discharge his duties. So maybe covered up the extent of it, but people knew that something was going on. But there is always that incentive. And even with the 25th Amendment, which was Section 4 was designed to remove some of those incentives in Section 3, but those incentives are still there because... The president's own staff, which don't have a role in, in, in invoking Section 4, the president's own staff might be protective of him. The president's family might be protective of him in a way that would make it hard for the truth to get out, or if the truth somehow gets out, that it could still be spun. You touched on a potentially awkward situation where the president comes down with a, a bilious fever, to, to cite the Madisonian example, and then the fever passes, but during such time, the amendment is invoked and the vice president takes power. What's the mechanism for the president getting out of his hospital bed, tapping someone on the shoulder and, and saying, that was quite the bilious fever I had, but uh, I'll take over now? Yes. So that was one of the main purposes of, of Section 4, was to make it clear that when the vice president came in, he would only be acting president, and that when the president recovered, he could come back. That was not clear under the original Constitution, but Section 4 specifies a process. Um, the, the president can say, I'm fine, and he can say it right after they declare he's not, or maybe he is in a coma and he doesn't say it until he recovers sufficiently. But once he says that, there's a four-day waiting period. He, uh, the vice president stays in charge during the four days. And if during the four days, the vice president and cabinet renew their declaration that the president is unable, then it goes to Congress. And that's when you need the two-thirds in the House, two-thirds in the Senate to back up 
the vice president and cabinet to, to keep the president out. But if the vice president and cabinet don't object, if they agree that he's recovered, or if one-third plus one representatives in the House or one-third plus one senators in the Senate agree with the president, then the president takes that power back and uh, presumably fires people for being disloyal. We've reached the midpoint in this Quillette podcast, which will resume very shortly. But first, a message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states. And you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month's service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. There's this sense in the media sometimes that the 25th Amendment is kind of a shortcut to get rid of Trump or any president, maybe people who haven't read the provisions or educated themselves might just assume that like the Surgeon General writes a note that says I certify Trump is bonkers and that's it and he's out of office. When people interview you, do you find there's a lot of ignorance about how the procedures work? Yes, that's actually the reason that I wrote the book. Um, I had written a little bit about a particular potential pitfall in the amendment um, in, in a previous book. And um, so I was I was pretty well versed in the 25th Amendment, I thought. And so I would I would go on Twitter and I would see just error after error, including by people who I would have thought would have known better. It's not hard to Google the 25th Amendment and just read it. So, for instance, people think that Congress invokes it or people don't understand that the president is only temporarily removed from power, that he can he's still in office. He can come back. There's just this notion that someone invokes the 25th Amendment and the president is cast into the pit of despair when, in fact, it's this complicated provision that really makes it hard to get rid of a president that way. It's not what it's designed to do. It was designed to not do that. It was designed to not function as a end run around impeachment, where impeachment's not going to work. Well, let's try this instead. They specifically designed it to be harder than impeachment so that it, so that it wouldn't work that way. I think one of the reasons for the misunderstanding is that it's never been invoked in real life, and it has been invoked lots of times in Hollywood. So there are all these movies uh, the movies actually in the 1990s, Air Force One, Harrison Ford is on the plane taken over by terrorists. And there's this actually well done depiction of the cabinet debating whether to invoke Section 4 or not. The movies got it pretty good. But then in, in the 2000s and the 2010s, all of these TV dramas came out. And it's, 
It's obvious why. I mean, it's, it's irresistible as a subject for movies. The stakes are the control of the presidency, and, and you've got this great cast of characters, the president, his staff, his family, the vice president, the cabinet, and they, they could be schemers or heroes or dupes or uh, whatever. And every single one of the TV shows that depicted uh, Section 4 of the 25th Amendment got something wrong about it, some, sometimes badly wrong, or in the case of the show 24, multiple times getting it badly wrong. And because it never happened in real life, people don't know. So with impeachment, you've got Clinton, you've got Nixon, and, and people understand that. With the 25th Amendment, you've got Jack Bauer on 24, or you've got President Keene on Homeland, and people see this on TV. They don't have any other frame of reference for it. And when they get it so badly wrong on, on TV for dramatic purposes sometimes, and just out of ignorance sometimes, then that's what people think. Well, let's talk about a... A specific example, because I think according to documents we now have access to, President Nixon, I think at least on one occasion, I think he was so drunk that his own staff were just not taking orders from him. He had to sleep it off. Is being an alcoholic, could that put you under the 25th Amendment? Um, in an extreme case, I suppose it, it might. I think in Nixon's case, they, they just wouldn't execute the orders he gave because they knew he wouldn't w want uh, them to have done it once he once he sobered up. But there was there was one case in which it should have been invoked and wasn't. And, and I think everyone involved agreed in retrospect that it should have been invoked. And that was when President Reagan was shot. That is one instance in which we can we can say a president was unable to do anything. I mean, he was he was under general anesthesia in surgery for hours, and he was confused for a while after that or days later before he could really regain his faculties. So they should have invoked it then, but they were concerned uh, for appearance's sake. They didn't want him to look weak. There were, it was in the middle of the Cold War. He was already old, so people were sort of wary of making him look feeble in any way. They basically put the best spin on it that they could and were ready to invoke it if need be. There are certain things only the president can do. The, 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 the chief of staff can't just sign his signature to. But they should have invoked it then, and they didn't. You had the Cold War calculus going on, and, and even a day or two without firm leadership could create a strategic liability. Well, and that's what they were, were talking about at the time. Reagan's in the hospital. No one knows if he's going to live or die. Vice President Bush is on a plane, and they don't have the technology to communicate with him very well on the plane at the time. And in the middle of all that, they get these reports that the Soviets are moving troops. And so no one, no one's going to go on TV right then and say, we have no president. Or even to say, we've invoked Section 4, and Vice President Bush is acting president, because that would have, that would have shaken confidence too, not that people didn't trust Vice President Bush, but that it would have made things seem unstable. And when on, on the show Scandal, when this happened, the, the president was uh, shot and they what they kept under wraps was that he wasn't better. And they they forged a signature for this counter declaration saying he's going to come back. That was sort of an interesting twist on this. Uh, it, it didn't go well, but, you know, miraculously, of course, he recovered from being shot in the head. Uh, and just enough time to to foil the uh, the plot against him. As I mentioned in the introduction, I met you back in the mid-90s when we went to law school together. And I remember the first time I met you, you gave me this very interesting, oddly detailed discussion. It was the election of 1892, was it? 
1876. I would have been 1876. Yeah. And I remember you were very interested, not just in politics in general, but the mechanics of presidential politics and some of the oddities of elections. Uh, And since then, I followed your academic career and you've written about the pardon power, whether presidents can pardon themselves. Why did you get interested in this very brass tax aspect of presidential political power? Because it seems to be something you've been interested in since undergraduate years. Yeah, I think there are two, num- uh, two reasons for that. One is, uh, for the elections, there, there are a lot of numbers. And I've always just liked looking at the numbers, playing with the data. And um, I, I think like a lot of little kids, uh, you, you know, you sort of latch on to something. Some kids, it's dinosaurs. For me, it was presidents. And I, I've just always been interested in presidents. And then uh, I, what I think is the most interesting angle uh, on that is not what do presidents do as president, uh, but rather how do they get there? How do they get removed? Uh, what are the uh, what are the boundaries on on holding that power? To me, it's it's kind of like the historical political equivalent um, of sports. Uh, you 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 look at you watch a football game and you you can keep track of all the stats, people play fantasy football and all that, think about the draft. It's kind of kind of the highest stakes version of that. I think the other thing that interested me, and it may be, may be more important and I think probably works a lot better than the sports analogy, is similar to the reason I went to law school in the first place, is that uh, to be a lawyer is to know what the rules are. Um, and, and when you play a board game, uh, you need to know the rules, and people disagree about the rules, and you, you consult the book, and you, you know what to do. Um, and so I, I felt like if if you know the rules, how how does someone become president? How does someone get removed? How does someone get stripped of power? Um, that's important stuff. And what I found was, even though it's there, even though you can read it, anyone can see what the rules are, most people don't take the time to do it. And uh, so it's important for me to know, and it's important for me to educate people about it as much as I can so that they know the right answer so that they're not saying, you know, I can go, I spend half my time on Twitter correcting people when they say wrong things about the 25th Amendment. To me, that's uh, that's a valuable service, help people understand the system, uh, civics education, you could call it. I don't know where people get it from, but they say, well, they can't even use the 25th Amendment because... The cabinet is full of acting secretaries, and they haven't been confirmed by the Senate. And that's just not true. First of all, acting secretaries probably can participate, uh, although it's unclear. It's certainly not clear that they can't. And second, there's only one acting secretary in the cabinet. And so to me, talking about the 25th Amendment, you say something inaccurate about the 25th Amendment, that's a problem. That's something that needs to be fixed. That person needs to be educated. Well, so that's probably what I was doing at law school orientation, telling you about the, it was important to me that you understand the truth and the accurate facts of the election of 1876. But I just wanted to make sure I understood you correctly. Going on Twitter and correcting people, that's a valuable public service, you're telling me? Well, I, let's not get carried away. Um, I, I would say it's it's important when you consider how quickly bad information gets around, takes hold. People say thank you to me all the time. Brian called. His new book is called Unable, The Law, Politics, and Limits of Section 4 of the 25th Amendment. Brian, thanks for being on the Quillette Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. 
If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.